Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Andrew Baker, an academic fellow at Stanford University's Rock Center for Corporate Governance and a PhD candidate at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. We'll be discussing his paper, Machine Learning and Predicted Returns for Event Studies in Securities Litigation, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Law, Finance, and Accounting, and is co-authored with Jonah Gelback of the UC Berkeley School of Law. Andrew, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Andrew, this article is about event studies and securities litigation, and in particular, single firm event studies. So I wondered if to start the conversation, you could maybe introduce our listeners to what are event studies or single event studies, what are they used for, and how do they work? I think that's a good place to start for this. So event studies are kind of a really common application of like a causal inference research question that's used in academic finance. And so the idea here is that stock prices incorporate information, right? So uh, on any given day, there could be news about a company or news about the market, and that changes the value of the stock, right? So frequently as researchers, we use those changes to test whether or not, you know, a piece of information mattered. So in academic finance, they've used event studies for quite a while. And the idea here is there's an event, the first papers that did this looked at things like stock splits or dividend announcements, and we want to see if that matters to firms. So what we do is we look at the days before and after the announcement of the stock, and we look at the change in the price. And, and then we, we judge whether or not we think this was material or uh, information, whether or not this changed investors' expectations about the discounted cash flow of the stock. So, it, you know, it's quite common. It's also a very simple statistical technique. So it's really widely used. The issue is that generally the way that works in academic work, right? If you want to look at something like a dividend announcement, you'll have a, a whole host of firms that have issued a, a dividend announcement. And so what you can do is you can look at the distribution of whatever the effect is on an individual firm, and you can aggregate it across those firms. And this has really nice statistical properties. It allows you to get a more precise estimate of what this is, and it, it's good for inference. So it allows you to kind of rely on the law of large numbers and the central limit theorem to come up with kind of tight bounds about what we would have expected otherwise, and then what we saw. The problem is that we use event studies now in litigation with only one security. If a company gets sued and the investors are trying to prove what damages they're allowed under Rule 10b-5, they're running an event study that's quite different from the way that academics typically use them. It's not to say that there's never event studies run for a single firm, but it's, it's pretty rare. So what Jonah and I do in this paper is say, well, if we're in a framework where we only have a single treated unit, the literature has kind of gone in a different direction in other areas about how to do a causal inference design in that setting. So that's the starting point for this paper is to say some of these assumptions that you typically rely on when you do an academic event study don't hold here. And we think that they might have real issues in terms of how they're used in court. So one of the objects of an event study in securities litigation is to identify the abnormal or the excess return associated with an event. What does that term mean and why does it matter in securities litigation? Assume that you're doing an event study about 
something like the, a dividend announcement, right? So every day there's news that enters the market that's market-wide news. And then there's information that enters the market that's specific to a firm. And then there's just general fluctuations that we kind of think that stocks follow something approximating a normal walk. So there's just general variation. The stock market never is, you know, if you look at the S&P 500 return, it's never going to be zero on a, on a given day, right? Or at least that I know of, there's never been a zero return on the market. So the point of an event study is to try to isolate the component of a stock return that we think is generally due to new firm-specific information from other pieces of information that generally affect stock prices. So this would be just you know, interest rate news. So say the Fed makes an announcement that it's going to lower or raise the interest rate, that'll tend to have an effect on the entire market. And that's not the type of movement that we're trying to pick up with our event study. So the abnormal return is just a name for that portion of the return that we think we're comfortable attributing to some firm-specific new information. And the way you do that is you generate a model of the predicted returns, right? So typically the way this has been done is with something called the capital asset pricing model or CAPM, where you assume that the return on the stock is just a function of the return on the the overall market. So this market return, the S&P 500, or there's larger indices in the S&P 500 that people use, that's what the overall market was on a given day, right? And so that's what, if you just went long the entire market, that's what your return would have been on that day. This theory, which is quite analytically beautiful, although people don't really believe it, it totally explains the market anymore, just said that you can explain the predicted component of the return solely by the function of the correlation between a stock's given return and the return on that market. And so the abnormal component is just what percentage of the return on a given day cannot be explained solely by how that stock usually relates to the market or how it solely relates to whatever the model is that you have for predicted returns. So the abnormal return gets used in securities litigation, quite obviously, because what's being alleged there is that a company lied in some way about a piece of information. And when that lie was revealed to the market, the market, typically the way these cases work is that in the material misrepresentation or emission effects will either increase the stock price or hold the stock price that should have decreased steady. And when that lie or emission is revealed to the market, the stock price declines. And so what we want to get is that the portion of the stock return on that day that cannot be attributed to general market fluctuations, but is attributed specifically to that piece of information. Um, so that's why the abnormal return is really kind of the whole game when it comes to uh, expert evidence in securities litigation. So the abnormal return is the whole game, as you mentioned. What potential issues do you raise with existing methods around the accuracy of abnormal return estimates that experts produce? Going back a little bit, Jonah and I started working on this paper because we'd both written projects before about how event studies are done in securities litigation. And so the way it works is you have what's called a a T-statistic, which is a way to test whether or not a given abnormal return is statistically significant. And, And all we mean by that is something that falls outside the bounds of what we would expect to normally see for an abnormal return on a normal day, right? And so the T-statistic has two components, as a numerator and as a denominator, right? So the numerator of the T-statistic is just whatever that abnormal return is. So say we're thinking of, I'm not going to use any specific stocks here because I don't want to get sued. So we just have the stock X, right? And we predicted, given everything that happened in the market and our model, that the return on that day would have been, without any new information, should have been 2%. Instead, what we saw was the return was negative 2%. Right, so we have an abnormal return of 4% on that day, negative 4%. So that's the numerator of 
this T statistic. The denominator is how noisy is this abnormal return usually? So over the period when we estimated our model, how off were we generally, right? And we need to know that to say whether or not this is far enough away that we're pretty confident that we can attribute this return to actual new information. Now, I just did that build up to say Jonah and I both did papers that focus a lot more on that denominator. So what happens is that the error in our models isn't constant over time. So I wrote a paper showing that during the financial crisis, the common way of doing these event studies really had some real flaws. And what happened is like when volatility increases a lot in a very short period of time, but you estimate the model over kind of a longer period of time, you kind of have two different periods of volatility. And what that does is it makes that denominator too small, right? Because in 2006, when the market wasn't going crazy, right, you might have expected, you might have had average estimation error of like 1%. So your average abnormal return in that period was 1%. But once the market starts going crazy and the market itself is going up and down 4 or 5% a day, you would expect that to be different, even without any fraudulent new information. All right. So essentially, Joan and I both did papers of saying, how can we incorporate you know, these changes in volatility to the normal event study models? Him and I have both talked now on the side after we had written these papers and said, well, we both kind of leave that numerator the same though, right? We assume that the abnormal return itself was properly estimated. What we thought was, is there a way for us to do better on the numerator as well? Um, and so, so that's kind of how this project started was to say, if we thought about this as kind of a normal causal inference problem that gets done, not just in finance, but in other areas, um, what we're really trying to do here is get the best possible prediction of what the expected return is on that day. And there's little reason to believe the models that get used already in court are the best possible ways, right? And so we thought we'd bring in some more modern methods for predicting things, because essentially what this is, is a prediction exercise. We're trying to predict what the return on the stock of X would have been on the day in which plaintiffs are alleging something happened. And we thought that there would be models that could better incorporate information in the stock price return generating process that would do a better job here. So that's what the genesis of this paper was. Could you maybe discuss a little bit what those methods you propose are how they work and maybe what impacts you would see them having with courts and with parties in securities litigation? There's kind of been a growth in these type of models that we use here within the field of economics over the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. So historically, what you would do, say you wanted to do a study where you're comparing some variable that you're interested in, and you have some kind of change in a policy, right? And so what you want to do is look at uh, what effect did this some change in a policy have on your outcome variable? But you want to control for other things, right? So say that we're looking within finance still, say that I'm doing a paper where I want to look at return on assets for certain companies. So that's a measure of firm profitability. And there was some change in a state level policy, right? So say different state business statutes that governed say, CEO entrenchment change. And we want to say, what effect did that have on our outcome variable? All right. Now, typically what you would do is you would kind of do a model where you predict the ROA, the return on assets for that firm based on some variables. And then what you do is you include a variable for this change in the statute. I mean, there's a little more to it, but that's essentially what you do. And you say, all right, well, you know, how does ROA generally change over time? Can we model that? And then let's look at the difference for firms that had this new law and firms that did it. 
So those other things that you control for, what we call them sometimes in economics is like nuisance parameters. Like I don't much care about what the coefficient value is on say the industry of that firm, right? Or on some other variable that we think impacts maybe both the treatment variable and the outcome variable. But previously what we would do is we would, you know, the researcher himself or herself would decide I'm going to control for these five variables, right? Like I think these matter. And, you know, I mean, it's not an ex ante unreasonable position to take, but it puts a lot of structure onto the question that are somewhat sometimes like untestable. Whether or not you choose to control for a certain variable can really have large impacts on the outcome of interest, right? And on your estimates. And so what these new methods do, um, I mean, we call it machine learning for predictive returns in this paper. Sometimes when people hear machine learning, they think of self-driving cars, artificial intelligence. Really, all this is is different statistical techniques that allow for some of this uncertainty we have about what variables matter, right? I mean, it's not magic. All it does is kind of essentially penalize when you include a variable. So the more variables you include, the more penalization you're going to get. And we know from statistical theory that what tends to happen is you overfit your model if you just include too many things. And what this penalization does is make it so that you include less things in your model, typically. We find that that does better predicting things out of sample. Long story short, in this paper, what we do... So let me just take one step back. Typically, how event studies get done in expert testimony is you have the return on the stock that you're trying to estimate. You pick some market proxy. Like I said, you can use the S&P 500. You could use an equally weighted or evaluated return on all the firms that are in the CRISP universe, which is kind of a superset of really all the firms in the market. A lot of experts, what they realize is that you need to control for industry factors. It's a really important thing. And we show in our paper that this actually really does make quite a large difference. So if you think about it, if you're trying to predict the return on IBM, if you believe CAPM, the only thing you need to predict the return on IBM is the return on the market. But in reality, what you want to know is what was the return on HP? What was the return on Apple? Because there are things that change in the market at the industry level that really drive the correlation structure among assets. And so typically what experts will do, acknowledging that this is a fact, is they'll run a regression. Well, they'll regress the return on the stock on the return on the market, and then a return on a, an index that they create of industry peers. But two different experts can come up with two different sets of industry peers, right? And those two sets of industry peers go into two different indices, and this can really generate real differences in, in the predictive returns. And so what we do is say, well, why don't we do something a little bit different? Instead of expert A and expert B both saying that I think the firms that are most similar to this stock is this, Instead, like, let's just do some machine learning techniques to let the data tell us which of these firms are most similar based on the historical returns. And so that's what we do in this paper. We use flexible models that take advantage of the natural correlation structure across firms. And what we show in the paper is that what this does is it both produces estimates that are more precise on average, right? So it's not the case that every single time that our models do better, but we do a, a simulation study where we pick random days and we try to predict returns and we do it 10,000 times. And what we show is that these models, as would be expected based on a long literature on predicting things, that our models do do slightly better uh, in predicting returns. But what we think is more important is that our model reduces discretion from the experts. So there's still a measure of discretion, which is what is the comparison set that you choose? I mean, that is never going to go away completely. But at this point, right, once you kind of come up with a set of potential firms, what we do is look at firms within the same industry codes, but you could think of other ways to 
group firms together, potential peer firms. But what our model does is say, so use a completely objective criterion, which is which of these firms do a better job uh, at predicting returns beforehand using held out data. So we can't cheat, can't look at what it knows would do best, right? It's predicting out of sample, which is exactly what an event study is doing when we use it in court. And what we show is that, you know, not only do we do a better job of predicting returns, but this would really help a judge who has two experts who are telling him two diametrically opposed things based on kind of a subjective decision of which firms to pick to control for. In this paper and in your work, you express some skepticism about the role of experts in private securities litigation. Could you share some of your thoughts there and maybe how some of that skepticism motivates this paper or your scholarship in general? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a pretty skeptical person naturally uh, for a lot of things. So I think it's not, probably not out of the realm of normal Andrewisms to think that. I mean, I think it's, it's right. So, you know, as a little bit of background. I did this for two and a half years after college before moving into research and then starting law school. So I worked at some of these consulting firms that would provide these expert reports. And so I think what both frustrates and concerns me is that as experts, you know, we're not advocates. We're not supposed to be advocates, right? So as a lawyer, you are supposed to make the best possible argument for your party, consistent with legal ethics and consistent with whatever the statutes and laws are in case you make the best possible argument for your client. As an expert, you are not there to advocate for your client. You are there to provide evidence to the court that helps a finder of fact make an informed decision. But the problem is that experts are paid by their respective sides, right? It's just kind of one of those things. It's like credit rating agencies being paid by the issuer, right? I mean, it's, it's quite clear how bias develops in these type of fields. And there are times where I feel like it's not clear to me that experts are really providing any insight to a court or to a jury. And I don't mean that by any means to say that that's the modal case or that's always the case, certainly not always the case, but we have generalist judges and completely generalist juries. If some of these types of cases ever get to that point who are sitting there learning the facts of the case, and then you get experts from either side giving completely conflicting testimony. And as a trained economist, it's based on assumptions to these models that are not transparent. And so for me, you know, I saw that repeatedly when I was in practice. It was hard enough for me to understand what is generating differences in expert reports as somebody who works in them, understands these details and generated the reports. So it's not clear to me that if we're trying to generate this from a societal perspective of what's the best way to inform courts in complicated commercial disputes, that the way that we do this right now helps as much as it should. It certainly generates a lot of billable hours. It's not clear to me that it's helping courts make more informed decisions consistently. So what I like about this approach that Jonah and I have taken is that it removes at least some what we call expert degrees of freedom, what economists call researcher degrees of freedom, which is how many levers are there that you can move as somebody doing an analysis? And what we should want from somebody outside looking in is to reduce that space of subjective decisions as much as possible. You're never going to remove it. Anytime you're making a, a claim, a causal claim, there's always going to be an assumption. Scott Cunningham, somebody I look up to says, you know, there's no causal inference without assumptions. So they're going to be there, but we should be doing our best to make them as transparent, as straightforward and easy to digest as possible. Uh, And I don't think that's what's happening now. 
So I think there's a potential for some of these methods that we've advocated here to be more broadly applicable, really, in expert testimony writ large, not just in securities cases, in antitrust cases, in in any kind of cases where you're making a prediction that you can both do better and you can make things that are more transparent and more easily digestible for a court to understand. And I think it's a win-win, not in all cases, but in certainly in a few. Andrew, what open questions or key takeaways would you like our listeners to be thinking about from this conversation and from the paper? I still think for me, for this is a little more niche, for people who are really interested in securities litigation, so practitioners or legal and economic scholars that focus on this area, I think it's quite unclear what we're really trying to do here sometimes. It is something that's still a takeaway for me, right? The 10B5 field really grew up after basic B. Levinson, Um, not that it didn't exist already before, but the Supreme Court codified this framework. We had a lot of people, I I kind of got into this in my student note, we had a lot of commentators at the time, law and econ scholars, right, that what this would do, what formalizing event studies and formalizing the fraud on the market hypothesis would do is remove discretion from judges about what is material, what matters to investors and make it purely an empirical question of was there a change in the stock price on this day, right? That was the kind of hope and glory of the shift to empirical 10B5 practice. I'm very, very hesitant to say that it's been good. As somebody who's written about this, who worked in this area, stocks fluctuate a lot for reasons that we don't really know. Given the fact that cases are filed after the fact, after we already know what stock returns are, there's just so much ability to cherry pick. And I think courts don't quite understand always how much discretion there goes into conducting an event study, how much uncertainty there really is about what we can model. Like I think as economists, this is sometimes our fault of overclaiming how good we are at doing things. But I look at the way that securities litigation has developed. Look at the intervening two to three decades of what's going on here. And these are some of our largest class action settlements. And they really can be driven by quite minor changes in methodological approach. That's not to say, look, I mean, if a a return on Enron stock on the day that their fraud was revealed was 40%, I mean, none of our approaches are going to change that within the bounds of negative 38 to negative 42%. But say you have a a stock like Apple, and there's just some day where there's a negative 6%, negative 7% return, and we can't really attribute it to anything. I mean, we're talking about like real money here. And I'm just not sure that, you know, for me as, as an empiricist, I think we have something to offer in terms of both in, in, in legal cases and in terms of research. I think we certainly have something to offer. We have skills we can provide to make sense of data, but it's like one piece of information, one datum that you should add to whatever your approach is about thinking about the world. This is something I, I kind of talk about and think about a lot that I think we've put empirical evidence on this pedestal that it doesn't always deserve. And so that's something I'm hesitant for. And it's one thing when we do it with policy decisions or, or in our research, but it's another thing when we start just having courts who aren't trained in these things, just start requiring certain types of evidence and having experts go out and, and make claims that are not always supported, but that are quite easy to generate when you have stock markets with 5,000 traded securities every day and unmodeled volatility. So, so that's my takeaway is that I, I really think that there will come a time when we should rethink how this whole field has developed and whether or not this is really serving its purpose of protecting investors. I certainly think we want to prevent fraud. 
obviously, I think that's a really good motive. And I think there's hope that there's deterrent impact from 10B5 cases. It's not quite clear from the evidence that that, that really is there. And I think we should have the SEC come in, is my takeaway. The SEC should be playing a bigger role here and not allowing some of the Wild West practices that I think have developed in terms of the way private suits have developed over time. Our guest today has been Andrew Baker, an academic fellow at Stanford University's Rock Center for Corporate Governance and a PhD candidate at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. We've discussed his paper, Machine Learning and Predicted Returns for Event Studies in Securities Litigation, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Law, Finance, and Accounting. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Andrew, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.